Beach Freaks. Invisible Choir explores detailed depictions of violence and murder and is not appropriate for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Niskayuna is a small town in Schenectady County, located in upstate New York. It's a quiet place reminiscent of any East Coast remote region, with triple-decker apartment units, colonial-style homes, and more mom-and-pop hardware stores and coffee shops than there are Walmarts and Home Depots. It's known by locals as one of the best places to live in New York, with a top-rated public school district and a crime rate of only 8.5% which is less than half of the 22.7% of the national average. It's no wonder why most that live in this area tend to stay, and new homeowners have shown an increased interest in Niskayuna in recent years. While this cozy town that borders New England is foreign to both property and violent criminal activity, when the subject does arise, one name rings bells almost instantly to its residents. That name is Clifford Burns a 46-year-old lifelong resident who has been in and out of trouble with the law since his teenage years. People always knew Cliff around town to be somewhat of a troublemaker, having had run-ins with police for small infractions and misdemeanors for as long as anyone could remember. See, Clifford Burns was indeed a ticking time bomb. There was no denying that. If you were to ask anyone that knew him, they'd describe him as a man with an intense personality. Some might even say he had anger problems. A hothead, if you will. But on Christmas Eve of 2013, Burns would far exceed the severity of any of his past crimes when his life's frustrations came to a head. This is a story of one man's downward spiral, a decline that would ultimately take place over the course of many years, until one day he finally snapped and the people on the receiving end of Cliff's bitterness and resentment were those closest to him, his immediate family members. After December 24th, 2013, Christmas in both Schenectady and Warren counties of upstate New York would forever hold an underlying connotation of horror attached to the once joyous holiday, and the lives of the surviving members of the Burns family would be changed for the rest of their waking days. Sunday, December 22, 2013, just days before Christmas, 14-year-old Autumn Burns hadn't seen her father Clifford in quite some time. Cliff had been having marital problems with his wife Patricia, Autumn's mother, for as long as she could remember. After years of an on-again, off-again relationship, the two had finally broken things off for good three years back in 2010. At this time, Patricia had moved into a new apartment and she was beginning to come into her own rebuilding a new life for herself. The pending divorce would inevitably split the family apart, as the couple's three daughters had chosen to stay with their mother at her new home on Lake Avenue in Lake Luzerne, located in upstate New York. 
Harley Burns had tried to live with her father Cliff so that he hadn't felt abandoned by his family altogether. But when the verbal abuse once concentrated on Patricia was now being shifted directly towards Harley, she decided she wanted out as well. The new residence was small, but it was all the girls needed. The quaint unit was built just above a local hardware store, and for the first time in a long time, Patricia was happy. With the holidays rapidly approaching, Autumn Burns couldn't help but think of her father's absence. She wanted to extend a caring gesture to Clifford, assuming she wouldn't be seeing her dad on Christmas again due to the current climate of the family dynamic. Autumn wanted Cliff to know that she was thinking of him regardless. So she sent a text message to Cliff that read, I just wanted to tell you I love you and Merry Christmas. Clifford responded soon after, but in a strange tone that left his daughter Autumn worried. I have a special gift for all of you. It will be hand-delivered on foot, not by car. I hope you're all there to see it, especially Harley. Autumn felt uncomfortable by the ominous text message from her father. She wasn't sure what it meant. No one in the family had seen Cliff in roughly eight months, and he knew that he wasn't welcome at his estranged wife's new residence. Was he actually bringing over a gift for his daughters, or did this mean something else? Autumn couldn't be sure. She asked her father what he meant by this, but did not receive a response back. Concerned, she decided to tell her mother Patricia about the recent text exchange with her father. Patricia assured Autumn that everything was fine and not to worry about her dad. This eased Autumn's mind, but only temporarily. Although well aware of the tumultuous past between Clifford and Patricia, Autumn believed that if her mother wasn't worried, then neither should she. Two days later, on Tuesday, December 24th, Christmas Eve had finally arrived. Autumn, Patricia, and her two other daughters, Megan, age 22, and Harley, age 16, were all enjoying time together as a family. The small apartment unit was filled with love and the smells of fresh holiday foods being prepared in the kitchen. Patricia had just taken the Christmas ham out of the freezer to be defrosted for tomorrow's meal when Harley ran up to kiss her mother goodbye as she was running out to do some last-minute Christmas shopping. Embracing her daughter with a hug, Patricia said, I love you. Be safe. As Harley ran out the door, Megan remembered the text message her stepfather Cliff had sent Autumn just two days before. Megan asked her mother if the family should be worried, reiterating her younger sister's concern. Just as she had told Autumn, Patricia reassured Megan that everything was fine by saying, quote, Megan, no, your father is mean, but he's not that evil. There was a collective uneasiness and leery feeling shared between the three sisters, but not Patricia. She wanted to convince her daughters that there was nothing to worry about, especially on Christmas. However, while Patricia was preparing her Christmas turkey in the kitchen, a knock came at the front door. Before anyone could react or even wonder who might be on their doorstep, a man dressed in full camouflage with a ski mask covering his face burst through the front entryway. The man immediately directed his attention toward a stunned Patricia Burns. The unidentified man violently shoved her, throwing her back into the kitchen corner. Megan screamed as she ran to the aid of her mother, jumping on top of the disguised figure as he viciously punched downward on Patricia as she fell to the ground. 
Both Megan and Patricia begged the man to stop, but he wouldn't, as he continued mercilessly beating Patricia with his bare fists. Megan finally got her arm around the attacker from his backside and ripped off the ski mask, only to find that the identity of the man was indeed the individual's the girls had been worried about all along. Megan's stepfather and Patricia's soon-to-be ex-husband, 46-year-old Clifford Burns. But before Megan could do anything, she saw that the man who had raised her from the age of five years old was now holding on to a large serrated hunting knife. So, who is Clifford Burns? And what kind of sick individual would do something like this to his own family? What on earth would compel a man to send threats to his own teenage daughters via text and arrive dressed in army fatigues at his ex-wife's home, only to ruthlessly assault her on Christmas Eve of all days? Well, we have to go back. Back to where it all began for Clifford. You see, monsters are most often not spawned and cultivated overnight. People are arguably almost never intrinsically evil. Most are a slowly evolved product of their vile and disturbing environments. Thus, insert Clifford Burns' name here. A man born in Niska Unit, New York to his mother Edith and his abusive father, James. For the lack of a better description, James was a piece of garbage human being. He would beat Clifford as a child and had a history of doing the same to his wife. Clifford was raised in a household where violence was commonplace, a characteristic trait that Cliff himself would later hone in on and adopt from his old man. Clifford became accustomed to this type of activity growing up as a young man, until one day the violence reached a peak that even he thought was imaginable. In 1984, when Clifford was just 17 years old, his father James decided to hold his wife hostage in their own home after beating her relentlessly. When the police had finally arrived, James Burns would initiate a shootout with the authorities. He had shot his wife inside their home with a shotgun, blowing off half of her arm. James shot at police, hitting one Schenectady officer before retreating inside the residence and eventually turning the gun on himself, committing suicide. The officer and Clifford's mother Edith would survive the incident, though it is unclear if Clifford himself was inside the home at the time of the shooting and his father's subsequent suicide. This event would surely mark a starting line drawn in the sand from which Clifford Burns would plant his feet and soon take off running, down a dark path carved out by none other than his late father James. Sure enough, Cliff would begin having run-ins with the law around this time, the most significant up to this point happening in the early 1990s, when he did two years in prison for a home invasion and robbery of an ex-girlfriend's house. When Cliff got out of prison, he tried to clean his act up a bit. He began working as an independent tree cutter and eventually would earn enough clients to start his own business. His tree cutting job became quite successful, in fact, and Cliff seemed to be turning his life around, financially at least. Fast forward to the late 1990s, Clifford Burns began frequenting a particular Schenectady Dunkin' Donuts establishment. Not for their uncanny ability to craft the perfect extra-extra-large iced coffee or Boston cream donut, but for another reason. A young woman by the name of Patricia happened to work the drive through counter of that Dunkin' Donuts, and she instantly caught Clifford's eye. 
he made it a part of his morning routine to visit the drive-thru, order his coffee, and then flirt with the attractive 26-year-old. Until one day, Clifford built up enough courage to ask her for her phone number. Patricia would willingly accept the courting gesture and wrote her name and phone number on the back of a Dunkin' Donuts receipt paper. In the dark of who exactly she had just given her personal information to, it was at this moment that Patricia's life would be changed forever. Sadly, not for the better, but for the absolute worst, when Clifford and Patricia officially began dating. The young couple was to be married in 1997, not long after they had met in the drive-thru of an upstate New York coffee chain. Patricia already had two children of her own by the names of Crystalline and Megan. The two newlyweds decided to grow their family together, having two more daughters of their own, Harley and Autumn. With trips to New York City, Mets baseball games in Queens, and new school clothes every September for the girls, to anyone on the outside looking in things look to be going well for the Burnses. But as we all know, things aren't always as they seem. And very seldomly do those not in the immediate family unit know exactly what goes on behind closed doors. In complete contradiction to the happy facade the Burnses had portrayed quite well, internally, things were precisely the opposite. Inside of the Burnses' home, things were extremely volatile, almost from the very beginning. Cliff's true colors began to shine through almost immediately after he and Patricia were married, starting with the verbal abuse he naturally learned from his father. Clifford would later graduate to physical violence, at times beating his wife in front of their four children. This went on for years, and like most domestic abuse victims, Patricia saw no way out. She endured the physical and emotional pain from one calendar year to the next trying to maintain her job as a hospice worker while simultaneously raising four young girls. The couple's daughter Harley would later recount seeing her mother get pummeled by Clifford, straddling her on the ground while punching her square in the face, as if he were engaged in a drunken dive bar brawl with another man. He would beat his wife, leave the house for two weeks, and eventually be welcomed back time and time again. Cliff would shower the girls with gifts and money upon his return as a way of convincing the family that he was sorry and that he had changed, but only until the next string of violence and abuse would occur not long thereafter. Things were only getting progressively worse for Patricia. The mistreatment became so terrible, in fact, that she filed several restraining orders against Cliff. He pleaded guilty to one misdemeanor for violating one protection order in 2003. During another incident, Burns was arrested for threatening to beat up one of the girls' school bus drivers. In 2009, he was arrested again for yet another infraction, this time refusing to obey a protection order. It went on like this for what must have felt like an eternity to Patricia, 13 years to be exact. The savage physical abuse endured by a young mother at the hands of her husband Clifford was something she learned to live with. And yet, somehow, this wouldn't be the worst of it, for that was yet to come. Just days after Christmas, on December 27, 2010, Patricia's daughter, Crystalline, 
in a bizarre, unexplained twist of fate, would tragically pass away in her sleep due to unknown health complications. She was only 15 years old. Doctors were baffled by the young girl's untimely death. After two autopsies by forensic pathologists and finding no drugs or alcohol in her system, the cause of death was ruled to have been from natural causes. No other specifications were ever made. As if Patricia and her daughters hadn't been through enough already, Crystalline's death completely destroyed their family, even more so than it already was. With the suffering harvested inside Patricia's heart from the passing of her little girl, perhaps she felt as though she had nothing else to lose. She decided it was time, once and for all, to stick up for herself and to leave Clifford. She must have sensed how delicate life truly was in that moment and chose life for herself. And if for nothing else, she knew she had to make a change to ensure a better future for her remaining family, Harley, Autumn, and Megan. Patricia packed her things and moved to a small apartment in Lake Luzerne, about an hour north of Niskayuna. Megan and Autumn went with their mother, but Harley stayed behind. She felt bad for Cliff, and even through all of the abuse she'd witnessed the man inflict upon her mother, she still had an unconditional love for her father. This arrangement would be short-lived, however, when the emotional abuse was eventually focused on Harley, when Patricia was no longer around to take the brunt of his explosive abuse. Harley soon joined her mother up north with her two sisters, still grieving the loss of their beloved Crystalline. But Clifford only became more irate with this decision, and when he found out Patricia had a new boyfriend not long after she had moved out, he completely went off the deep end. Ted Backus was a man that also lived in Lake Luzerne. The two hadn't been seeing each other long before Patricia learned that Ted also liked to put his hands on women himself. She had traded one toxic relationship for the next, while still dealing with the residual effects of Clifford's abuse. He would call the home, threatening both Ted and Patricia, constantly berating her over the phone, demanding to know the details and terms regarding their remained shared assets, including their home in Niskayuna. This in turn enraged Ted Backus, and he decided to take frustrations out not on Cliff, but on his new girlfriend. During one incident in February of 2012, Ted assaulted Patricia and shot an unregistered firearm inside the apartment and into the ceiling after a heated argument. Police soon arrived and after a brief standoff, Ted was arrested but was only charged with a misdemeanor. He was essentially let off with a slap on the wrist. When Clifford Burns caught wind of this, he became even more of a raving lunatic than he already was. He knew that Ted was brothers with two local sheriff's deputies in town, and he attributed this relationship to Bacchus's light sentence, believing he received special treatment for the offense. It was clear that Clifford Burns felt he was losing control over his ex-wife, his children, and not to mention his tree-cutting business. He began suffering financially, having only limited work, forced to wait out the harsh northern New York winters. He hopelessly began making false claims to the state's child abuse hotline, stating that Patricia was abusing the girls. All of these claims were investigated, but never substantiated. Burns was a powder keg of anger just waiting to combust, and it would only be a matter of time before he finally burst. Luckily, the relationship between Patricia and her new abuser, Ted Backus, wouldn't last long, as the two eventually split up. Miraculously, Clifford Burns himself seemed to disappear for a while. 
Patricia finally sensed some peace in her life when she nor the girls had any contact with Clifford for months at a time in 2013. Had Patricia finally escaped her ex-husband's reign of terror? Or was this only the beginning? Fast forward to that dark day, December 24, 2013, Christmas Eve, back in Lake Luzerne, New York. The residents of this quiet lakeside community were enjoying time with their loved ones, getting ready to bring in the Christmas holiday, including Patricia Burns and her daughters, Megan, Autumn, and Harley. But just after 5 p.m. that evening, chaos would erupt out of nowhere, and no one inside of the home ever saw it coming. After a few rapid bangs at the door, Clifford Burns broke into Patricia's home and began assaulting her, dressed in full army fatigues. With his face covered, he attacked Patricia Burns and continuously beating her on the floor. Megan then ran to her mother's aid, trying desperately to get Cliff off of her. In a blind rage, he raised a large hunting knife that up until this point he had been concealing. Megan tore off his face mask, revealing that it was indeed her stepfather. He had come to kill her mother, she thought, and quite possibly the rest of the girls. Unfazed by Megan's attempt to disarm the man, Clifford thrust the knife in a downward motion, slicing Megan's arm wide open. Her skin was essentially filleted down to the bone, the laceration narrowly missing a main artery. She begged her father to stop, and as her adrenaline kicked in, she dismissed her severe wound. Clifford disregarded his daughter's pleas and began relentlessly stabbing his ex-wife Patricia there on the kitchen floor. While she lay helpless, muttering something to the effect of, Please, Cliff, don't do this. I love you. He ignored Patricia as well while she begged him for her life. During the attack, Clifford reportedly responded to Patricia by stating only, You're going to die in this house tonight. After his fury came to a close, believing Patricia to be dead, Clifford then turned his attention back to his stepdaughter, Megan, as she stumbled while attempting to flee the house. With her arm now profusely bleeding, she ran as fast as she could, only to look back and see Clifford coming after her with the knife. She tried to jump over a snowbank at the road's edge, but fell. Cliff was now getting closer. Megan screamed for help, hoping for anyone nearby to hear her cries. Just then, a neighbor across the street came outside to see what was going on. And just before Cliff had reached his daughter Megan, and before fleeing on foot, he looked down at her as she lay bleeding in the snow, saying something to the effect of, Don't think this is the last for you, bitch. Clifford then ran down the street to where his car was parked, got in, and sped away. Megan yelled for the neighbors to call 911 as she ran back inside her mother's apartment when she was sure that Clifford was gone. Megan arrived back inside only to find her mother Patricia laying on the kitchen tile, barely clinging to life. Her sister Autumn, who was in the bedroom during the attack, was now kneeling over their mother's body, in shock of what had just happened, trying to keep Patricia alert as she faded in and out of consciousness. Megan screamed and pleaded for her sister Autumn to call 911. 911, The 911 operator tries to keep Autumn calm as he asks her to provide a description of the assailant, her own father. He's on foot, he's got a gun, he's got a knife, he's got a 
he ran. I don't know if he saw the up. He's like five nine, five ten. He's bald. He's wearing camouflage right now, and I think he's gonna go out to the mountains. Megan then noticed blood coming from her mother's mouth as Patricia struggled to breathe. Autumn despairingly demands medical attention from the operator. They were losing Patricia fast and they were running out of time. Megan urges Autumn to tell her mother how much she loves her, knowing that these very well may be her last moments alive. Soon after the authorities showed up at the residence, Harley Burns, who was out shopping for some last-minute gifts at the time of the attack, was informed of a chaotic event with police presence outside of her mother's home via social media. She started receiving text and Facebook messages on her phone shortly thereafter. What's going on at your mom's house? Is everything okay? Harley had no idea what this meant, but she began to worry. She called her mother and sisters, but there was no answer. Harley, why are there police at your mom's? What's going on? She instantly remembered the suspicious text her father had sent her sister Autumn only days before. She knew something was wrong. And she was right. She was eventually able to get a hold of her sister Megan on the phone. The line was still being recorded from Autumn's initial 911 call. I tried to save her. I tried to save her. He ran. He chased after me. I ran. I tried to help her. He came all the way up here to kill her. I'm trying to save her. I'm trying to save Patricia was rushed to Glen Falls Hospital, located at 100 Park Street in Glen Falls, New York. Without heading home, Harley immediately rushed to the emergency room after getting off the phone with her sister. Harley soon was met by Autumn, who had arrived at the ER lobby just moments after her, hysterical and in tears, covered in her mother's blood. In a state of dazed and surreal confusion, Harley frantically begged for answers. She was quickly notified by hospital personnel that her stepsister, Megan, was undergoing emergency surgery for the knife wound to her arm. Harley pleaded with the ER staff to let her see her mother, but by then, it was too late. Patricia Burns had succumbed to her injuries soon after her arrival and was reported to be deceased. With multiple stab wounds to her chest and upper torso area, Patricia had little to no chance of surviving, and the two girls were left alone waiting in the ER lobby to receive a status update on their sister Megan's condition that Christmas Eve. Meanwhile, Clifford Burns was wanted for the murder of his ex-wife Patricia and was still on the run, but not for long. Local police quickly spotted his vehicle and engaged him in a high-speed chase. The chase was short-lived, however, as he must have realized that there was no escape. Clifford Burns eventually led police into their own entranceway of the Warren County Sheriff's Office in Lake George, New York. After Burns was cornered by officers, he came out with his hands in the air and surrendered. After the suspect was apprehended and brought into custody, Under Sheriff Sean Lamery asked Burns, quote, What are you doing here? 
Clifford Burns responded with, I've done a bad thing and I need to go to jail. Patricia Burns was murdered and pronounced dead on Christmas Eve, just hours before she was set to celebrate a quiet and peaceful holiday with her children, perhaps for the first time ever. She was just 42 years old. Patricia was a proud mother who was remembered as outgoing, caring, and the first to break out into song and dance when spending time cooking or baking in the kitchen with her beloved daughters. Megan would survive the attack after receiving several stitches nearly meeting the same fate as her mother. Patricia was a hospice nurse who always put the needs of others before her own. She suffered years of abuse at the hands of different men. That abuse would finally come to a violent end when Clifford selfishly decided to take her life due to his own frustrations regarding child support payments and a personal vendetta relating to his ex dating other men. Clifford ultimately placed skewed and false blame on Patricia for his own failures and pitfalls in life. He made her pay the ultimate sacrifice for his own self-serving and narcissistic agenda. Burns was a typical controlling and hate-filled abuser. Even after Patricia had the courage to escape, she truly never was able to. Burns harassed her up until the day he killed her, right up until she took her last breath. What would happen next is truly unlike anything the Warren County Sheriff's Department had ever seen before. In this seat right over here. I have a lot of things to talk about. I want to talk to somebody I can fucking talk to and trust. And you seem like the guy. Can you but, talk to me? I'm going to have one of my investigators come in and talk to you, Clifford. All right. They're, they're all very reasonable people. No, they're not reasonable here. During a five-hour-long interrogation, Burns would leave all of his resentment, anger, and tears on the table. He was brought in for questioning but not many questions would actually be asked, as Clifford began to nonsensically spill his guts to authorities while handcuffed to a desk inside of the small interrogation room. Police were willing to let Clifford talk, and we have to warn you that the following audio offered up by Clifford Burns, as captured in this police recording, is extremely aggressive, vulgar, racist, and misogynistic in nature. Please be advised. Why didn't you guys just fucking put a bullet in I don't want to either. Do you understand what a man goes through, officer? I spend $250 a week on child support and couldn't see my kids because she lonely. Her and Teddy back has put a court order against me. Before the officer can even get Clifford Burns out of his original handcuffs and into the new restraints, he's already begun submitting some very incriminating evidence to police. Just one minute into this video, Burns has already voluntarily established his motive for the murder. I want to say something to you, too. I love that woman. I love my kids with all my heart. And she fucking took everything from me. Let's see where you are, Clifford. The officer then leaves the room to get his partner to begin the interrogation. Clifford Burns, though clearly in an emotional state, would be expected to have been a bit more quiet during these early moments conversing with police, considering the charges that were being brought against him. 
having been a seasoned criminal by then, who had been in and out of jail his entire adult life. Clifford Burns seems to have forgotten that everything he says can and will be used against him in a court of law. Amazingly, this fact seems to be lost on Burns and comes off as being the very last of his list of concerns. His next statement regarding his plea is certainly contradictory to the information he's already willingly provided. But this is only the beginning of his manic and hypocritical statements. Do you want me to script that? No. What could you have here with me? I my glasses on, right? I know my rights and everything. You don't have to even read it. Just give me my charges. I'm pleading not guilty and I want to be put in cell. Okay. You have the right to remain silent and to refuse to answer any questions. Isn't do say can be used against you in a court of law. They have the right to stop answering questions at any time you desire. They have the right to talk to a lawyer to remain silent until you can talk right. to him. You don't have to read me. Now. I know my rights. In prison, when you're getting questioned, I just have to read these today, okay? You desire a lawyer, but cannot afford one, or provide it to you without cause. You can use any time to exercise these rights and not answer any questions or make any statements. Understand those? Sir, yes, sir. Alright. With a response of Sir, yes, sir. We can mark this point in the interview, where Clifford Burns begins trying to identify with the officers. He goes on to speak about his gun collection and respect for the military, trying to engage the officers in guy talk, in a feeble attempt to relate to the police after having just murdered the woman he was married to for over 10 years. I'm not a disrespectful guy either. Okay. You know the fucking Bacchus brothers who they are? I know them, yeah. They fucking started all this. Yeah. They fucking brother, brother Teddy. The lucky I'm in my right fucking mind because I deal with AK-47s and fucking AR-15s. <laughs> well, what I'm going to tell you what happened. My ex-wife put a court order against me. Teddy Backus went over in the house and shot the fucking house up with a gun and got all misdemeanors because you cocksuckers are corrupt in Warren County. And you know you are. It was an apartment complex with kids in it. And unregistered illegal handgun and gets all misdemeanors. That's what I want to do to her face. Right up with a fucking knife. She took my kids away from me, everything I fucking have today. I get a fucking call from my lawyer saying they're coming with a warrant for my arrest for missing two child support payments. I stayed away. I haven't seen my kids in eight months. It's fucking mm-hmm. Christmas. I am the fucking devil. Where's your kids now? They're home. I don't know where the fuck they are. I haven't seen them in eight months. When this broad can do this on Christmas, fuck me in the ass like this. It was my last straw. I'd rather live in prison. Do you know when a woman snaps you? and keeps your kids away from it, what it does to a man, that you work and pay for your kids your whole fucking life, then the Bacchus brothers rig the charges when the fucking guy goes over and shoots my old lady's house up and beats the fuck out of her, and he gets misdemeanors, you cocksuckers. Fuck you, motherfucker. You know what happened up there. All misdemeanors, nine of them, when he shot the house up with an unregistered handgun. Do you know who Teddy Bacchus is? I know you know the name. He's a fucking retard. If I ever could get my hands on him, I'd fucking kill him. Burns continues to stress the incident with Ted Backus as the motivating factor behind the violent murder. He is seen motioning with his free hand, using his thumb to resemble a knife, rapidly swiping his finger from his mouth to his ear, offering up the confession that back when the Backus incident happened in 2012, he wished he had cut Patricia then. Sure enough, only a few months later on Christmas Eve of 2013, Clifford Burns would do just that. But instead of using a blade to slice the inside of her cheek, he would use a serrated hunting knife to stab her multiple times in the chest. 
I'm a fucking man in every aspect, motherfucker. Fucking game. I got to reframe myself because I'm really, I can't even take it no more. You know what happened today? Family court calls my lawyer up saying they're fucking taking my kids. They put me in jail and I did nothing but pay it, you guys. And this guy shoots the house up with a loaded handgun, gets all misdemeanors. Do you, it was an apartment complex. You know Governor Cuomo's gun laws? It was an unregistered handgun. Every gun, every bullet in the fucking chamber of a gun was a felony. Going in the apartment complex was a felony and dislodging the handgun. He got nine fucking misdemeanors because of his brother. Meet my old lady, I put her in the fucking hospital. My kid was home. Where the fuck the fucking Get him in here and put me in a room with both and I'll beat the fuck out of him. He ran like a coward and a snake and his brothers are two pieces of shit. This is where Burns becomes violent and irate, displaying a glimpse into the wrath he had just unleashed on Patricia Burns only a couple hours earlier. While shackled to the table, Burns lunges out of his seat, erratically attempting to display some type of dominance, expressing just how manly he is to the police officers, as a computer and keyboard bounce off the desk from his explosive outburst. The two men in uniform present in the room with Burns are neither threatened nor amused by his antics. Nobody did nothing to him. Nobody did nothing. But me, two court orders against me and haven't seen my kids since last fucking year. The fucking nigger. He disappeared from the town because I've been going up there the last few days. I was going to got him. Teddy Bacchus. You can tell him I said it. Don't ever let me out of jail again. Because I'll kill him. I love my children. Right here, motherfucker. Irish. And you cocksuckers are Irish. And you let this motherfucker walk. We didn't let him do anything. But his brothers did. When I came home from family court, when she had me arrested on a fucking violation, the cop in the car said he was brand new and he knew the charges were Trump, but he didn't open his fucking mouth. In case you hadn't already realized the type of depraved human that is Clifford Burns, the previous 45-second clip says it all. Burns admits that he was searching for Ted Backus, looking to kill him just days before murdering Patricia but that, according to him, Bacchus had already left town. Burns also shows us here that he is indeed a racist that is quite proud of his Irish heritage. Notice how Burns is still talking and that the officers haven't yet even asked one question, almost 10 minutes into his interview. The two men stand on opposing sides of the room, listening intently and observing Burns' odd behavior. Hey, just hunt 250 a fucking week. I lost everything. My fucking business, all my vehicles, and my fucking house. I'm whittled up to a $600 apartment while this cunt runs around my fucking money. My kids, I talked to my daughter two days ago for the first time, called you cocksuckers, and said the fucking bitch is over there drunk. The kid was afraid to go to fuck home. They were going to do something, they never do nothing to the fucking bitch. They go there and she's intoxicated with the fucking minors in the house and he's doing nothing. What the fuck is your fucking problem? I don't know who went there. You're you're classified as all as one group. I don't know who went there. I don't know who's handling You know what? You gotta admit, brother. Say what you want. We're off the fucking record because I ain't signing nothing. Okay. The Bacchus brothers rigged his charges and this is what I heard because I know everybody in the town. The, The man that built the fucking town hall told me he was gonna lose his gun fucking, his hunting license so they didn't give him felonies. You did that shit down in Albany, you still wouldn't be out of jail today. 
They want to fuck you up. This is the Wild West, man, and I'm a wild motherfucker, ain't I now? You would have loved to have a motherfucker like me in Iraq, wouldn't you? Because I got them fucking tile heads. I love this country, and it fucking did me wrong. Fucking wrong! How old are you? 36. 36. I'm 46, brother. My life's over. It's clear neither of the officers know what to say to this man, even if they were able to get a word in edgewise. One thing immediately evident is that Clifford Burns blames Ted Backus for what happened to Patricia. Ironically, not once out of his almost immediate admittance of guilt does he want to take accountability for his actions. He continues to dwell on the fact that in his eyes, Bacchus received a special treatment for the incident in February of 2012. By now, police are fully aware that Ted Bacchus and Patricia's relationship was a clear motivating factor in Patricia's murder. By this point, it's abundantly clear that they aren't dealing with even a remotely rational human being. I haven't seen my daughters in eight months. You guys know you little girls. You pay for them. You go to work every fucking day for them. And every time wants to be drunk, my wife's a full-blown stripper. Three years ago, her daughter died. She went in the bottle. I begged her to go to counseling. Next thing I noticed, Teddy Backus is in the picture. I have two court orders, and I was taken right out of my town. My father raised me, and he showed me how to hunt, fish, and go through the mountain. It was too early. I was going to build a cabin in the fucking woods and put all my shit and supplies and go in and live in the woods because I can do it. I said, fuck it today. I can't do this no more. I can't sit in a one-room apartment. I gotta see my children. And I can't see my fucking children. This statement only lends to the affirmation of what Clifford's daughter, Autumn, had already stated on the 911 call. She told the operator that she believed her father would be fleeing to the woods after killing her mother. Clifford reveals to police that this was indeed his plan. But while sitting alone in his one-bedroom apartment an hour south of where the girls were celebrating Christmas, he admits that he couldn't take it anymore and decided to take the hour-long trek to Lake Luzerne. I'm going to tell you what listen it is. Bring the Bacchus and brothers and I'll fight them one-on-one with one fucking hand. I'll break both their fucking jaws right off. I believe do you believe me, motherfucker? I can see you're very fast. You want to see? There it is, white power. That's what I believe in. The Irish. Irish. You guys, you deal with weapons every day. I had AK-47s, AR-15s at my disposal. I could have made this a war. You want to know what my mindset was? Take her out, spray paint the building, let's play back his boys, and take him in the mountains. You would have had to drop a fucking platoon in for me. A platoon, brothers. Burns stands up positioning himself in a fighting stance, with one arm firmly handcuffed to the table, threatening not only to beat up Ted Backus, but his brother as well, who is a police officer of the very same sheriff's department he is being questioned inside of. He then lifts his shirt to reveal an indecipherable white supremacist tattoo on the center of his chest, not clearly visible from the grainy footage. Surely, threatening to beat up a police officer just after murdering your ex-wife isn't the best course of action for Clifford. And yet, he proceeds for roughly four more hours. Naturally, we won't subject you to this entire interrogation, but if you have some time on your hands, the footage is most easily accessible on the internet. Nevertheless, we will share a few more very important clips that are quite telling of just who Clifford Burns was as a person 
as well as more specifics in regards to the events that took place earlier that evening. I'm done. I'm giving my life away tonight. Is she dead? I, I, have, I have just came to work, so... You know what? I'm I didn't want to the... kill her. Really, I, I got emotional when my children were there. So after she called you today, sir, what happened? I lost it. It's Christmas. I haven't seen my children in three Christmases. I have a custody to see them, but when she put the court order on me with Teddy Backus, he put her all up to it. I found out everything. And did you drive up here, sir, from your house? Go fuck yourself. How the fuck do you think I got here? Flew or walked? My car's right out in the right, fucking parking lot. Are you fucking stupid? Stupid, sir. I'm just trying to find out. I just got Find out this. You're a corrupt cocksucker, and this is the Wild West. What's my charge? I, I don't know yet, sir. You don't know yet? No. I'm just trying to find out what happened tonight, sir. So you said you drove up here? I want to see my babies. Burns continues this turbulent display of emotion throughout the entirety of his interview. From one manic outburst to the next, he transitions from unhinged maniacal behavior to extremely sad and even heavily weeping at times. It was like the devil took my body over today. I just had it. I couldn't do it no more. I can't do it. You know what it is to live your life in a fucking room like this because everything's been taken from you and you leave them alone, you don't go around the country. She called my phone several times this weekend threatening me. She's having me arrested. I can't even live anymore. I can't fucking live. Child support's tough. No, it's, it's very 20 tough. other things that are involved with it, though. You don't even get yeah. the big picture. Well, I can tell you I've been through, through uh, some difficult times myself. Right, and I just, I, I, um, I know it's not an easy thing to deal with, especially around the holidays. I lost everything, and I'm definitely, I'm hurt. What do you mean you lost everything? The woman's taken everything. I just, I can't even live anymore. I haven't worked in three weeks because it's wintertime. I'm a small tree service. Clifford Burns continues to seek pity from the officers, stating that he can't live anymore. On the contrary, Clifford Burns is still very much alive unlike his estranged wife, Patricia. In an attempt to calm Burns down, one officer lends his own experiences with having to pay child support, attempting to reach him on a human level. But Clifford Burns is not a man to take accountability for his own actions, so he continues to seemingly pass the buck, blaming his follies on everyone else. Divorce and separation are more common in America now than ever before. Plenty of individuals have children with a partner they eventually split up with and end up having to pay child support payments, and they do so without murdering their ex-partner. Clifford Burns, however, is entitled. He believes that he is special and for some reason feels the world is against him. Much to his dismay, he'll soon be informed that he is not special at all. He is simply a failure to society that refused to abide by the law and took his personal grievances out on the woman he claims to have once loved more than anything in the world. Listen to the very moment after an officer enters the room, revealing to Clifford that Patricia Burns is indeed deceased. His acting performance is clearly just another indication of one more thing that Clifford Burns just isn't all that good at. Clifford, Patricia's dead. What? She's dead. Speaking of acting... Listen to Clifford Burns as he nonchalantly chats with the officer about some recent entertainment he had just watched on television. 
I watched this movie and then I De Niro and fucking uh, Travolta. It was called like The Killing Something. Did you see it, brother? I haven't seen it. I got it. Oh, fucking awesome. You should watch it. It starts off in uh, one of them foreign countries and he was special services. And Travolta, he was like, he was a Russian with one of them things or something on The Killing Squad. It was badass. You gotta watch it. I can't even remember. I'm so fucked up in the head. <clears throat> but at the end, this death squad, all the special lot forces, there was 10 of them there over there. And it was genocide going on. They got the fucking killers, the scorpion guys. They were like from Kosovo or what? I don't even know them fucking countries. They lined them all up, special forces going down the line. Boom. Each guy, because when you're in a unit like that, and you're special forces, you got each other's back. You know the fucking deal. So each man had, there was 10 of them and 10 special forces. They went down the line killing them. De Niro's the last one in line. He hesitated and he waited. Travolta looked at him. He finally shot him because they were scumbags. They were like Hitler, you know what I'm saying? And he fucking goes over to America. He goes, I'm going hunting, my friend. He did an awesome accident. They're the two greatest actors on TV. Yeah, they're good. <laughs> I know you would like that movie. Yeah, I got to watch that one. It is truly astounding to listen to Clifford Burns. About four hours into this rambling audio, casually speak about a war film he had just seen. The piece of cinematography he's referring to here is entitled Killing Season, starring John Travolta and Robert De Niro. There are some frightening coincidences that lie within the plot of this movie, to the situation playing out in real time there in the interrogation room. For example... The storyline follows the tale of a man who retreats to the Appalachian Mountains to forget about a past war. Lake Luzerne, where Patricia Burns lived, is located among the Adirondack Mountain Range, not far from the film's setting, as parts of its geography are only separated by Lake Champlain. In the movie, the main character becomes a recluse. The lonely man, Ford, depicted by Robert De Niro, eventually meets a former soldier, Emil Kovac, who is played by John Travolta during a hunting trip. Travolta reveals his plot to seek revenge, confiding in Ford, targeting those that have wronged him. Perhaps this is more than a mere coincidence, or perhaps it's a look into the mind of a sick man who has gained some sort of violent influence from a Hollywood army film. Regardless, it's chilling to watch Burns here, a man who just stabbed his wife to death in cold blood, Discuss this movie as if he had just finished his laundry and got back from grocery shopping like it was just any other day. His heartless attitude speaks volumes of just how detached Clifford Burns is from reality and how little he cares of the deadly actions that he had just carried out. He even refers to a line in the movie where the main character, played by John Travolta, says something to the effect of, I'm going hunting. Meanwhile, Patricia Burns was dead and his stepdaughter Megan had just been released after emergency surgery for the wide laceration Clifford inflicted upon her arm. Hunting his family, ironically enough, is exactly what this man had just done. Burns never did have any military experience himself, even with all the strange repetitive expressions he showcased of his obsessive affinity towards the armed services. He wanted to be a Marine, but never was. And perhaps that was just another goal Cliff had in life that he never accomplished. 
sitting there in the same army fatigues he had just killed Patricia Burns in. Clifford continues to show no remorse, speaking only of himself right up until the very last moments of this tape. I prayed to God all the time in my apartment by myself. He never heard me. He let me down, man. And then every fucking day, it'd be something. It'd be money, courts, money, fucking this. But where's my kids? Where's my fucking family? I had, a, I lost every fucking thing. So it's just like, what's worse, a fucking crackhead on the side of the street? While Clifford Burns was being held without bond, police were searching his apartment on Troy Schenectady Road in Niskayuna, New York. Inside, they found a note, handwritten by Burns himself, dated December 24th, 2013, addressed to his daughters. That note read the following. I, Clifford Burns, leave all my possessions and vehicles to my children, to be divided equally for college and whatever. The note was formally signed Clifford R. Burns, with the name of his attorney handwritten at the footer. It's clear from this letter signed by Burns himself that he was certain he would not be coming home ever again after leaving his residence on Christmas Eve and making the drive to Patricia's apartment. On December 28th, just days after committing the murder, Clifford Burns was observed by corrections officers, stating aloud to himself, quote, I'm glad I killed her. Clifford Burns initially pleaded guilty to second-degree murder for killing his estranged wife, Patricia Burns. He took the deal in an effort to avoid a life sentence. But on November 15, 2015, he suddenly attempted to retract the plea agreement, claiming that he was forced by police and his lawyers to take the deal. The appeal would be denied soon after. The courts found Burns' argument to be, quote, devoid of any merit, as Burns had been read his rights at the time of his guilty plea, demonstrating that he had entered into the agreement willingly. Clifford Burns did avoid a jury trial, and during his sentencing, continued the ongoing trend of showing zero remorse towards his victims or his actions. The courts issued a protection order, barring him from having any contact with his daughters until the year 2045, which Burns outwardly stated that he would be appealing in court. Clifford R. Burns was ultimately sentenced to 23 years to life, a judgment that spawned the first in any time he showed emotion in the courtroom surely not upset for taking Patricia Burns' life, instead feeling sorry for himself yet again as he broke out into tears head in hands before he was taken away to prison. He is currently serving his time at the Auburn Correctional Facility in Auburn, New York. Like so many of the cases we cover on Invisible Choir, we quickly find out that we can never truly know what goes on behind our neighbor's closed doors and just how easy it is for a family to hide their secrets in plain sight. But when it comes to domestic abuse, this type of hidden reality is all too common when riding the fine line of respecting one's privacy and potentially saving them from life-threatening violence. How can we ever truly know if a friend or loved one actually needs our help? If only it were truly as simple as asking. Domestic violence not only destroys individuals, the ripple effects can destroy families or even entire communities. And in the case of Patricia Burns, leave a dark stain on one of the most sacred and celebratory times of the year. 
on Christmas. <laughs>